You're listening to Radio Diaries. This is Joe. And I'm excited to tell you about the newest show in the Radiotopia family. It's called The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. I'm sure a lot of you listen to podcasts while cooking. Well, The Recipe is the podcast that will teach you how to be a better cook with tips from two seasoned pros, pun intended. Hosted by Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Walk and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen, The Recipe not only lets you learn new recipes, but also teaches you techniques and secret ingredients that'll up your cooking from just okay to restaurant quality. So welcome them to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Radio Diaries is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. We also have support from Indeed. Instead of spending weeks searching for talent, Indeed matches you with quality candidates that fit your job description. Plus, you can connect with candidates faster by scheduling interviews, screening, and messaging them all in one platform. To try it out, listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com diaries. Just go to Indeed.com slash diaries right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Radiotopia. From PRX. From PRX's Radiotopia, this is Radio Diaries. I'm Joe Richman. Build that wall. 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 A new law signed by the president to begin building an 18-foot-high border fence along parts of the U.S.-Mexico border. This actually happened 13 years ago. The year was 2006. The president was Bush. The project went by different names. Operation Gatekeeper in California, Operation Safeguard in Arizona. In Texas, they called it Operation Hold the Line. Today, that fence exists. It looks like a dotted line covering about a third of the almost 2,000-mile border. The very first border wall on the U.S.-Mexico border was built 100 years ago. It was a six-foot-tall fence that went straight down the middle of the town of Nogales, Arizona. Walls and fences represent a very human impulse to have an actual physical barrier that marks the imaginary one on the map. It's a simple idea, and like most things, it turns out to not be so simple. Today in the podcast, stories about walls and borders and what happens when, instead of people crossing the border, the border crosses the people. Hello. Hello, is this Pamela Taylor? It is. So can you tell me where you are right now? I'm in my living room. I'm looking out the window. I see my uh, front yard, and beyond that is the fence. It is huge, iron about 20 feet tall. The fence was put in there by Homeland Security. You may have noticed Pamela Taylor has a slight British accent, but she's an American citizen. After World War II, she married an American, and they moved to a small brick house outside of Brownsville, Texas. 
and she's been there for more than 60 years. The house is technically in the U.S., but for the past decade, it's been on the wrong side of the fence. We're on the Mexican side. The fence is in front of my home. Let me just go over this. So for many people thinking about the border fence, they just assume it's on the border. No, it's not true. The Rio Grande River is the legal border between the U.S. and Mexico. But the border fence doesn't follow all the natural contours of that river. If they followed the river, it would be a winding fence, whereas now it is a straight fence, and therefore they did not need to install that much fence. And in the beginning, (laughs) we were told this fence was going to go right through my living room. Luckily, they ended up building it about a mile north. Today, Taylor has about a half dozen neighbors in the exact same situation as her. Down the road, there's also a farm and a golf course, all on the Mexican side of the fence. We've gotten used to it now. We just can't go on and be miserable about it. So how would you describe where you are living? Well, actually, it's a no-man's land. And I, I, <laughs> I firmly believe that I shouldn't be paying taxes. A no-man's land between two countries. That's what our next story is about. You'll hear it in a minute after this message from our sponsor. This episode of the Radio Diaries podcast has support from Audible, the largest collection of audiobooks on the planet. Select from thousands of bestsellers, mysteries, memoirs, wellness guides, histories, and so much more. Audible members choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible originals, which you can't hear anywhere else. Last year, Audible published The Radical King, a collection of speeches and essays from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., many of which were never recorded during his lifetime. It includes performances from Wanda Sykes, Leslie Odom Jr., and LeVar Burton. You can download it for free today. Just go to audible.com diaries or text diaries to 500-500. Start your free trial at audible.com diaries, D-I-A-R-I-E-S, or text diaries to 500-500. Now, back to the show. The United States is not as big today as it was at this time yesterday. President Johnson and President Diaz Ordaz of Mexico met at the border today and ended an old dispute. The Rio Grande River has been the border between the U.S. and Mexico ever since Texas became a state. The problem is rivers can move, and that's exactly what happened in 1864. Torrential rains caused the river to jump its banks and go south. All of a sudden, the border was in a different place. What that meant is that Texas had gained a square mile of land. It was called the Chamizal, named for the scrubby desert plant that grew there. The Chamizal was a thorn in the side of U.S.-Mexico relations for a century, and then finally, 50 years ago, the U.S. gave the land back to Mexico. But by that time, thousands of people had moved to the Chamizal and made it their home. And that is where this story begins. My name is Maria Eugenia Trillo. I grew up in the Chamisal area during the 50s and 60s. I lived one street away from the river, which was the division between the two countries. The river was just more like a highway that you had to cross to get to where you needed to be. There was a baseball team on the Mexican side, and then there was a team on the El Paso side, and they would just signal each other through whistles, and then they would cross. (laughs) It was just life. Life with a river between us. This is an interview, 
is part of the Chamisal Oral History Project. So, Mr. Hinojosa, could I ask you to describe the neighborhood? Yes. There were a lot of tenements and a lot of small, I hate to say shacks, but that's what they were. They didn't have any electricity, no running water. But you built one room, and then you built another room, and then you built another room, one room after the other. They become, I guess, better off. My name is Victor Guzman Garcia. The Garcia clan goes back to about 386 years in this area. A lot of Mexicans from the interior thought that uh, Chamizal, which was basically just a square mile of land, they thought it was as large as California and that it probably had oil and gold. So every time there was an issue between two countries, uh, Mexico would, of course, bring up the Chamizal. My name is Paul Kramer, and I'm an historian at Vanderbilt University researching the history of the Chamizal. In Mexico, the Chamizal represented illegally occupied territory. But in the United States, very few Americans had even heard of it. And then in the 1960s, that all changed in a really unexpected way. And this is NBC News, presenting today a new special, Crisis in Cuba. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. With the Cuban Missile Crisis, and specifically the fact that Mexico does not cut off its ties to Castro, the Kennedy administration becomes very concerned that Mexico could be vulnerable in the Cold War. Suddenly there's a real willingness to remedy the Chamizal dispute, to use it as a kind of bargaining chip. And so the big question is, the residents of this tiny patch of land, what's going to happen to them? This is a letter from the International Boundary and Water Commission to Mr. Luis Rivera. Dear Sir, we advise that the appraisal of your property would be undertaken as soon as practical, preparatory to acquisition by the federal government. It's authorized by the As kids are kids, we were eavesdropping, and we heard there was going to be removal. We remember our fathers dumping around the kitchen, saying, Pero es que no pueden, no, they can't. We were Mexican by heritage, but we understood that we were American by nationality. People were given a choice of going back to Mexico. And only one man that we know of actually accepted to go back. Everybody else said, no. But we all had to be out by October 1964. This is an interview with W.E. Wood, former government real estate appraiser during the Chamisal settlement. How, how did most of the people feel about leaving their homes? Uh, it, was, it was mixed. There's one case that I can recall. Now, this lady had a very nice home, better than the rest of them in the neighborhood. And she was not going to let us in, and she couldn't speak English. Do, do you speak Spanish? Yes, enough to get by. And she told me that she was not going to give her house to those goddamn Mexicans in Mexico and that they can go to hell, and I'm going to keep my house, and I will get my guns out, and I will fight. And the day when it came to move, the United States Marshals picked her up bodily and put her in a car and put her furniture in storage. My name is Angie Nunez. It was a very big disappointment because they did not pay for the house. They paid us for the land. My father had just built 
four extra rooms in our house. We had central heating. He even had the, the bricks made special, adobe, with the hay, because the house was going to be that much thicker, that much warmer, that much whatever. And we had to leave all that. One by one, the family started moving out. And what was left behind were empty shells of homes and the windows were all boarded up and then yellow ribbon was placed on them so that we couldn't even go into the backyards. So it looked like a crime scene with this yellow tape all over until the only family left was ours. Ours, historically, was the last one. And I remember my dad said, don't look back. You are forbidden from looking back. An enthusiastic welcome at the U.S.-Mexican border for Presidents Johnson and Gustavo Díaz-Ordaz arriving together to settle a century-old border dispute. I remember thousands and thousands of people on top of the bridge and everything. And I could see Johnson, I could see him sitting at the table and uh, Díaz-Ordaz. Señor Presidente de los Estados Unidos de América, distinguida señora de Johnson. Pretty much the whole of the White House with congressmen and senators and everybody was here. I mean, this was a big thing. An unpredictable river has been converted into a controlled source of water for Mexicans and Americans alike. Viva la amistad entre México y Estados Unidos. By December 1968, Mexico and the United States jointly sponsor the digging of a cement line channel that will make the river go where the authorities want it to go in terms of maintaining the boundary that they want. After speeches, the two men walked over to press the buttons that would detonate a retaining wall about a mile away and send the water down its new channel. At the appointed time, the two presidents approach this black box that's been set up on the bridge, which has these two red buttons and they're supposed to hit the buttons and detonate these explosives to release the mighty Rio Grande into its new channel. In fact, there's just a puff of smoke, nothing happens. And so very quickly, technicians bulldoze the dam and release the river, completing the ceremony. It's taken 100 years, but it's finally done. Mexico has its piece of scruff land back, though perhaps it hasn't decided what to do with it. And the river is once again the international boundary. It cost $40 million, but it's very tidy this way. Jack Perkins, NBC News, El Paso. Well, I'll show you. The river is now encased in cement. That poor thing. It's about five feet across. It looks like a muddy creek. Where we used to go, it was wide. Sometimes it had quite a bit of water, and it would ripple across. There's only so much control a man can do on a river. Sooner or later, I personally think that river is going to do what Mother Nature has taught it to do, to move. Well, I woke up this morning to the door I did go. I found that I was living in old Mexico. I got the Chamizal Blues. The song you're listening to right now is the Chamizal Blues, 
is by Bob Burns and the Teakwoods. It was recorded in 1963, a year before the Chamizal was handed back to Mexico. Well, I was born in America in El Paso, and now I'm a citizen of old Mexico. I got the Chamizal blues. Thanks to historian Paul Kramer for letting us know about the Chamizal story. Also thanks to Maria Eugenia Trio, the University of Texas El Paso Oral History Collection, the LBJ Presidential Archive, and the Vanderbilt Archive. And if you want to see photos of the Chamizal and a cool map that shows how the Rio Grande has moved over the last hundred years, go to radiodiaries.org. One more note, Pamela Taylor, who you heard at the top of the show, has passed away. She was 90 years old. Taylor used to say she lived in a gated community. Now her family is trying to figure out what to do with her house, sitting in no man's land on the wrong side of the border fence. I talked to a friend of hers who's taking care of that house, and her dog and her cats. He said he's also been restocking the bottles of water and lollipops that Taylor used to regularly leave outside for migrants or border agents or whoever happened to be passing through her yard on their way across the border. The Radio Diaries podcast is produced by Sarah Kate Kramer with help from Nellie Gillis. Our editors are Deborah George and Ben Shapiro. Radio Diaries is part of the Radiotopia Network from PRX, a collective of the best podcasts on the planet. I'm Joe Richman. Thanks for listening. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.